Good afternoon, and welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Maggie Carini with the Friends of the Library. Today we welcome Claudia Caballero, Executive Director of Centro Hispano. Caballero was born in the western mountains of Honduras and earned a bachelor's in business administration from the Catholic University of Honduras. She spent most of her early childhood and teen life moving between Honduras and the United States. Claudia will be talking about the Faraway Brothers, Two Young Migrants and the Making of an American Life by Lauren Markham. Claudia? Good afternoon, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you for the introduction. Um, my name is Claudia Caballero, and yeah, I'm the executive director at Centro Hispano. We are an educational organization that helps the Latino community integrate into Knoxville. We teach English, we do after-school programs with ESL children at schools and at our um, organization's main campus, and we also do a lot of education around being a good community member. So for example, how to pay your taxes, how to purchase a home, how to build credit, and other resources that are in the community. So very excited to be here. I've never been to one of these events before. I'm gonna have to come back. So my, uh, my synopsis is part mine, part New York Times, part Amazon. <laughs> it's a couple of pieces from everyone. Like, oh, that's really good. Why am I gonna change that? So um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Flores brothers. Their names are Ernesto and um, and I know the, Raul, I know the other one too. We're gonna to talk about the decision that they made to move to the United States when they were 17. They're originally from El Salvador. We're gonna talk about the terrible situations that they both went through crossing the Mexican, the Guatemalan border, the Mexican border, and then coming to the United States. They moved to Oakland, California, and that is where the author, Laura Markman, met them, where she was at their school, which was an international school. She was their program director, so helping kids just connect to whatever they need to connect to in the community when they don't have many times parents to help them. So that's how the link comes in with the author. We're going to talk a little bit about how they navigated the school system in a new language how they have to work to pay the coyote uh, that brought them from El Salvador, also how they have to pay their rent and their food and what happens when you get sick and you have all of that, as, as well as, uh, this was a really interesting part of the book for me, the, the day they go to their immigration court hearing in San Francisco. The other area I, I I want to touch a little bit today because I, I'm working on it at Centro Hispano and it was really perfect timing is the physical and the mental decline of both of the young men as that we go follow them through the book. Depression, self-damaging, uh, so many different aspects. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. I found it really interesting as well that they were so traumatized that it was hard for them to articulate it and very hard for them to identify it to be able to look for help. So that, that touched me a lot. Throughout the book, we also talk about um, their family back in El Salvador, which was an interesting element to me because we kept bouncing between El Salvador and the United States. And the, the book gives a really complex story. It's, it's not one-sided in the sense that 
as most immigrant stories, we can't just talk about one thing when we talk about why someone immigrates and what motivates them to do that. To this. So let's discuss the making of this American dream for these two young men. The very beginning of the book talks about the extreme poverty that these two boys live in, Raul and Ernesto, and it talks about their parents, and it talks a little bit about before they were even born. They were two of nine or two of 11 children. So the parents got married, and they couldn't have children at the beginning of their marriage. And they were praying to God, and they were going to the altars at the church, and they were making offerings, and they wanted children. So for me, it was really hard. And I'm going to be really honest in this. I don't know, I don't know how. I, take Centro Hispano from one side, because this is going to be Claudia speaking about this book. But it was really, really disturbing for me how they had one child and another child and another child, and they didn't have food or housing or what they needed to care for these kids, and yet they still wanted more children, as if for them it was a blessing to have one and another. And that part was really rough for me, because in Honduras, I, I was raised in a very rural part of the country. So I actually have to walk about two kilometers from my farm on a mud road to get into the little village, to get onto a bus, to get into town if I don't have a car. And I've done that many times in my life. So I had families in this community that had six, seven, eight, ten children, deaths, uh, premature, so many different things. And I, that to me just really impacted me. And and I know it's, it's, it's a story of Appalachia as well. We have, fam we have huge families here. So I found that parallel very interesting how large families, we talk about it being many times stereotyped as, as something of an immigrant family, but it really happens all across all countries. And the other thing I found really interesting was I've been at Centro Hispano for a year and a half. Before this, I was a wholesale manager for a for-profit company. I'd worked for a nonprofit in the past. Uh, we did educational work between Honduras and, and Ohio, other story. But um, when I moved here and I started working with youth at Centro Hispano, I heard stories from teachers and from the kids themselves about how they needed to pay for the fees the, the coyote had, had um, charged. And the coyote is the is that the only term we use for that? Is another word? Uh, the person that brings you across illegally. So when I heard of this, I was horrified. I was like, how is it possible that a parent would make a child pay for their way here? And I was looking at it from a parent being in the States and working, which I know they don't make that much money either, but why would you do that to your child, you know? And many times these kids sometimes don't want to come at all, and the parents los mandan a traer, which means they, they have them brought. I, I've known kids in Fulton High School recently. There was a girl who was living in Mexico with her grandparents. She was going through high school. She was doing really well, and her parents basically forced her to, to come to the States through a coyote. She was on her path to college. She got here, she, it was only like 18 months ago, two years ago. She didn't have DACA, she had nothing. She comes to the States and she realizes she can't go to college. Her parents had divorced in the time she would lived with her grandparents. The parents are here in Knoxville and they, they wanted her to come live with them, but they hadn't told her that they were divorced. Her mother had a new husband, but her ex-husband was also living in the house. There were new children in the family, and a 17-year-old comes into a home in Knoxville, and they expect this child to, to what? Integrate into this new family, into this place where she doesn't speak the language. And I was looking at it from that, that side because those were the stories I'd heard here in, in Knoxville. And I was like, well, if you're a parent that's asking for your child to come here, you must have had money to pay. 
But this story just flipped it around for me and it really made me look at it from a more compassionate point because this family, it's the opposite. The older brother has come to the States, Wilbur Jr. He's been here for a couple of years. And Ernesto, the I guess I would have called him the more rebel of the two brothers, was having problems and being identified by the gangs. They were really bullied a lot in their town in El Salvador because they were very, very poor. I was recently talking to my Latino friends, talking about how ruthless we are about bullying, ruthless bullying, really, really terrible stuff. So. There was a lot of bullying. He was trying to be cool, so he starts, you know, flirting with the gangs, and then things get gnarly. And in my assumption of the book is he will get killed if he stays there. So he does the terrible journey to um, the United States, but he gets stuck in Mexico. And while he's there, his twin brother, identical twin brother, people don't know which is the twin that left. So his brother's having the same problems as well. And... Um, when they finally meet in Mexico, they're there for a while, and the part that really impacted me as well there was their story of crossing the border, because I have heard horror stories of children as young as seven or eight crossing the border alone. In Mexico, when they're at the border, um, they're in a house, no doors, no windows, there's a whole bunch of um, men in the place, and one of the brothers, Ernesto, the more rebel one, is taken to the back by one of the coyotes, and I assume the worst, I think he was raped in the back, and they don't tell you what happens. And a couple of chapters later in the book, you find out that he's back there and he actually witnesses the murder of another guy that freaked out while being locked in this place because he'd been in this house for over two months and they wouldn't take him across the border. So he witnesses a murder. They start walking across the desert. They find bodies. They find lost items from different people. And Ernesto, again, when they're running across the desert, stumbles over a dead body and actually falls on this person and never talks about it, never says anything to his brother, doesn't want to talk to his counselors, and he's having nightmares, he's having problems in school, he's acting out, he's dropping out, and we can't figure out in different parts of the book what's happening. And this is a very extreme situation, but I don't think it should be taken lightly because I believe this story, similar in different degrees, happens to many of the children that have crossed the border. Those were things that stood out. I didn't think this story was gonna be personal. I'm Honduran American, my mother is a Peace Corps volunteer that stayed. So we were from humble backgrounds, but I always had an American passport, which we always knew was a really big privilege. And I saw poverty around me in school, in the village I lived, and I, I was starting this book, and, and Nicole sent it to me, and I'm like, oh, great, you know, I'm working with immigrants. I'll see what this is about. It was really, really interesting because I'm the oldest of five siblings, and my youngest brother is 14 years younger than me, so I'm going to be 33. He's just turned 18. He was having problems in Honduras, and he was smoking pot, and he wasn't going to school, and all this stuff. So he comes to the States after three or four years of saying no, he doesn't want to come here. He got into some trouble with the law, and he really got scared, so he came to live with us. And listening to this story made me understand his perspective better as well, because 
I was raised in the States part of my life. He never was. He was born after we moved permanently back to Honduras. So he was not really Honduran and American. He was only Honduran, although he speaks perfect English, although he has an American passport, he's not, he's not American. I don't know how to explain that, but it's kind of the same situation of asking a DACA child who was born in a different country but raised in the United States their entire lives to go back to a country where they don't belong. Henry belonged here, but he didn't. And that is a really a similarity in my, my opinion of what happens when people are like, well, they can just go back to wherever they came from. Well, they don't have another place. This is the home they grew up in, you know? Um, I really identified with Wilbur. Wilbur is the older brother in California who is the custodian for the two younger brothers. He did not financially help them get to the States. They actually got a loan from a really terrible, shady place. But once they got here, he needed to sign off as their guardian. He couldn't make them work to pay for their schooling or for their, for their coyote or for their housing or for their food because they had to be in school by law because they were minors. That same situation for me was trying to keep track of Henry staying on track in the States. And these kids, uh, make some bad friends and get in trouble and spend the money that they make on crazy things like, you know, $100 Nikes or a new iPhone. And I still don't have a solution to it. I don't understand really why it happens, but my brother would do similar things. He'd spend all his money on fast food. And I, he was living for free in my house, and I'm like, you need to save up. You're going to be moving out on your own. You know, we need some financial literacy here. Let's make a budget. These are the same struggles they were talking to the kids about in the school, and they didn't do it. And then when they do leave home, they had the same problems. And I never thought someone from my, ha my family would be homeless. I, I would never imagine that to happen. I feel we were all raised by the same parents. We have the same values. My brother was homeless for probably two or three weeks. And that was another place I connected with this book because these boys, so they're in Oakland, they have a house where the brother lives and his girlfriend lives there and his girlfriend's mother lives there and her two younger children live there. And then the mother's boyfriend moves in and then a couple of his friends move in. So the, they kick them out of the house because they realize that there's too many people living there and the boys need to find a place to live and they don't go and do their homework and their research, you know, and they end up homeless. I will never forget that experience of being the caregiver for someone and trying to give them advice and trying to give them steps towards doing something and then people not listening to you. And I know that's a, I know that's a big sister problem, but throughout the book, I really felt connection as well with the author because the school is giving all these kids options and they're giving them different opportunities. And, and where I'm standing in, in the mental health situation and the financial health situation and the privilege I stand, I'm like, well, aren't you stupid? That's, that's what I feel when I talk about my, my brother's issues, but that was also what I thought about when I saw these, these kids in the story. It's also what I see when I'm at the schools you know, listening and talking to kids, or when I have young adults come to Centro, I'm like, look, many of them are American citizens, and I talk to them like, these are your options. And there are barriers that aren't physical. 
that keep people from, from improving their lives. So to me, that was so important in this book because if we don't address those mental barriers that people have, if we don't address mental health issues with people, it doesn't matter how many options we give them, they're not going to be able to take advantage of them. This goes back to my, my Centro Hispano work. We've started a newcomers program at uh, Fulton High School. I love Project Grad. They're incredible organization that supports everybody basically, but low-income children who are navigating the school system to be able to go to college. They contacted us and they said, hey, we've got a group of newcomers that we don't know what to do with. These kids all have been in the country for 18 months or less. They don't speak the language well. They aren't on paths to post-secondary education. Can you come in and help? So we had the lofty idea and dream that we were going to do leadership skills for these kids. Like, I am a true believer that if you have human skills, the rest will come easier, you know? If you can connect to other people and you can build relationships, if you can build trust and if someone puts trust in you, you've got to step ahead. So I thought, you know, let's do some leadership programming with these kids. Oh my gosh. Does everyone know Maslow's Pyramid of Needs? There is no way you can teach leadership skills to someone who does not know if they have a roof over their head tomorrow. You cannot talk about empowering and, learn and finding your voice if you don't know if you're going to be able to eat your next meal. So we scaled back and we've actually started a program that helps kids with those basic needs. So we teach teenagers what resources are in the community for them when they don't have someone else to ask. So what happens if I'm sick? Well, one kid had the flu and they didn't know what to do. They ended up at the ER and people say, oh, well, if they go to the ER, you know, they're undocumented, they don't pay, yada, yada. $500 later, they came out of the ER with a couple of prescriptions for the flu. He didn't know he could go to Cherokee Health. He didn't know he could go to Interfaith. He didn't know the options he had. Some of the other things we want to incorporate are how to identify mental health issues. And it's a, we say, oh, it's a stigma in the Latino community. It's a stigma in every community. And that's why I talk about mental health all the time. And I'm a proud person that goes to therapy, and I think it's really healthy. But um, these kids, we wanted to help them identify when they were depressed. Because many times, teenagers aren't lazy. It's not that they're lazy, it's that they cannot get out of bed in the morning because they're so depressed. Or they're so overwhelmed with life. And these kids were raising themselves. And we have these stories in Knoxville, so I don't want us to think, well, the book happens in California, so you know, California, right? This happens in every single city across the country. And it doesn't just happen to the immigrant community. It happens to low-income families. It happens to people that have the opioid epidemic. It happens to people that lose their homes for different financial economical reasons. The issues in this book, yes, are about immigration. Yes, they're about 
they talk a lot about data on how subcontractors have so much money in these facilities on the borders. But I feel as well the underlying, and this is my personal take on it, but the underlying issue is we need to be supporting young people who have limited resources all across the board because they're having issues in the schools and teachers see it and they don't have the resources necessarily to help them. So that was part of the personal connection for me. Did anyone else notice Maricela in the book? So um, Ernesto and Raul have a sister named Maricela. Throughout the book, I was so frustrated because she's strong, she's very talented, she is a woman, so she didn't ever really get the option. No one asked her if she wanted to be the one to go to the States. And she gets pregnant by some one of her brother's friends and then he disappears and she's taking care of the child in her parents' house with all the rest of the siblings. And once everything goes down, and, and Raul is actually the second, well, actually the third brother, so first Wilbur, then Ernesto, and then Raul. Once Raul leaves, she's like, why wasn't it me? And especially once we hear a little bit about the story, so the parents actually give the deeds to one of their farm properties. They have a little parcel of land. That is the money they used to get the boys to the States. So if the boys don't pay it back, they lose the plot of land where they produce part of the food for their entire year because they are um, subsistent farmers. So that's the stress as well because the boys are like sometimes $100 at the end of a month to pay back. And it's compounded weekly, so they got out like $14,000 in the loan and they're up to like 20-something and it's just going and going. And it, it becomes unpayable. So at one point... Ernesto gets his girlfriend pregnant. It's just a cycle, you know, and, and that part to me was really interesting because the mother of the young woman is heartbroken. She had had, Sof I think her name was Sophia. Um, she had had Sophia at 15. Sophia got pregnant at 15. And the mom had worked so hard to get her in school and educated and wanted a better life for her. And she falls into the exact same pattern that her mother did. So Raul now has a baby and a wife. He can't send money home. And he couldn't send money home before, so he's less now. So Raul, the one I, I kind of identified as more sensitive of the two brothers, more um, in tune, more uh, gentle, I guess would have been the way I would have described him. He's losing his mind with the pressure. And he starts cutting, and he starts piercing, and he starts tattooing all over his face and his neck. And... He's trying to manage something because he can't manage anything else in his life. And so there's this moment in the book where I just give a breath of relief because the family loses the plot of land, if I'm correct. They lose the plot of land and the mom tells Raul, you know, don't worry about it. Focus on your life. We'll be okay without the plot of land. And at that moment in the book, it's almost at the end of the book, Raul talks about how he can actually feel like he can have a head start, like he can get things going. I, I'd love to hear from someone that read the book. I had a couple of questions that I was going to ask at the end, but I want to kind of incorporate them now. Did anyone identify with any part of the book? Because I'm Latina, so I mean, and it's my neighbors from El Salvador, so I thought I would find something, but I found a lot more than I thought. So does, did someone here find something that really identified with them or moved them or touched them about the book? <laughs> Hi, my name is Kunika. Um, 
and I am an identical twin. I have an identical twin sister. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and um, it's gonna sound weird, but coming to Knoxville was not to compare it to like El Salvador in America, but coming to Knoxville was a culture shock for me. Me and my sister dealt with it two very different ways. And so, like I got, I had a baby. I had my, my son the day after my 20th birthday. So I stayed in school, luckily. Um, but that's helped me with the work that I do with our immigrant families. Coming here, I didn't know streets, I didn't know people, I didn't know resources, but I had to figure out like DHS and KCDC and TenCare. And so it was like, I imagine now me navigating that, who, I speak English, like that's my native tongue, right? And then I imagine people trying to navigate that when you tell them go find a fax machine. Like how, how do you operate a fax machine? And I feel like that, that was something that happened so far, yeah. okay, so, so far from where I am. But yeah, so I think about those things in terms of the work that I do. And then the piece about them being identical twins, I'm interested in reading um, throughout because when you have two people who grew up in the same place in similar circumstances, I think that a lot of times you, you give people a single story because they are the same person to you. But being that they're identical twins, I think that their reaction shows you how, how big a part mental health plays. Um, because these are, these are two people that came from the same exact place, but had two very different reactions to coming to the United States. And so that stood out to me, especially as an identical twin. Thank you. Uh, so the, this part about the fax machine is really interesting. So this is really a true story. My parents' farm didn't have electricity till about 15 years ago. Um, it didn't have running water till about 20 years ago, so we had to pump the water into this big tank and then by gravity would go into the house. And so imagine asking my parents to go find a fax machine and they're educated. They, they have college degrees. In a town where you have maybe two or three telephones, when I was growing up in San Jose, Copan, that's where I was born, there were three telephones in town. We didn't have cell phones until probably the early 2000s. They started coming out and it was a huge luxury. Now everyone has one or two cell phones per person there. But the, the boys are trying to get asylum in the States. And their story is that their father had mistreated them or their parents had mistreated them. And that's why they were looking for asylum here as unaccompanied minors. But then the system asks them to get a signed paper from their parents for some authorization. So you're asking the parent that the child is running away from to sign a paper to authorize this child to stay in the country. You know, it was very, it was very contradicting. And that part really was very personal to me as well because I remember when I was living in Honduras and I would need internet or I would need a phone or fax, you literally had to walk through the entire town. And if it was a cloudy day, you might not have a signal so you wouldn't get a fax to come through or the internet wouldn't connect. And this family, had to go to a different town to get a fa the fax printed, to sign it, to get it back to them, which in my mind is like, why didn't someone just fake the signature? <laughs> I don't know, that was my first thought. I was like, wow, this sounds like it would have absolutely been impossible. I don't understand how this works. And, and I know people that couldn't even get it done. These people got it done. I know people that can't get it done. What happens, for example, Knoxville has a very large Mayan uh, population from Guatemala. They will walk several hours to get to a school from one village to another. They don't have electricity many times. They don't have running water. They have batteries that run electricity through or, or light through their houses. How are you going to get a fax? Are you really going to travel seven hours to get paperwork like that. And it happens at Centro. We have families that need paperwork and we have to send an email. Now people have emails. 
they can't ever remember their passwords 99% of the time. But um, we're working on that. We've got a digital education course coming up. But um, those struggles happen now at Centro Hispano every single day. A random lady came to Centro Hispano about a year ago on a Friday, and we don't open on Fridays. I was there that day. She brought in probably 50 pages of faxed documents. They were awful. You know how faxed documents look. They're on that super thin paper, and it's like lined and stuff, and I could hardly understand it. We got the people to email it to her. I fill out the paperwork for her, and she has a daughter detained, and she wants to reunite with her daughter. Um, so I'm like, fine, this is not going to work. Like, I'll fill it out with you. I'll help you. Um, and she was hardly literate herself. So you can't write it for people. So I had to write things on one sheet of paper, give them to her to draw out on the document. It took forever. Two weeks later, she walks through the door with her daughter. I cried right there. They had made it work. I'm always awed by people's resources, their ability, even with language barriers, even with financial barriers, even with educational barriers, to make these things work. She came through my door with her daughter, and they were looking for the school they needed to enroll in. There was a different issue. The girl didn't speak any English. She was 13. She was an adorable kid. She was, I think she was going to Northwest. I don't, don't quote me, I don't remember exactly. Well, there's only an interpreter at Northwest four hours a week, once a week. So if the mom was working the day, she'd have to ask for the day off so she could go in and enroll her daughter. We have now a welcome center. We hope this is going to help that problem. So you can go to the welcome center at any time. They help you enroll in the school you're supposed to be in. But anyway, one of those situations where someone comes in, you know, with 50 pages and, and I was, I'm usually an optimist, but I was not that day. I was like, this is not gonna work. That was, that was something else that came up and I was really interested in. I would love to someday, if Centro has the money for it, I would love to go check out some of these international high schools. There are several of them across the country because they're built to support these kids on all the different levels that they're coming in. So we will have someone who is 16 who's had a fourth grade education. Or we will have a kid that's a year from graduating high school in Honduras, for example, and they come here and their education isn't even an eighth grader's education. So how do we help level these kids out for whatever they want to do after school? And I'm always awed by teachers because everyone I've met in a classroom is so compassionate, so patient, so kind. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, how can this work be so hard? But then I look at a classroom teacher and I'm like, never mind, <laughs> never mind. But um, I'm really interested in these international schools and what the setup is and how we can better serve ELL students because at Centro Hispano, we changed up our programs about a year ago, I guess now, about a year and three months ago. And our programs are six week modules. People are learning English really fast. But I go into a classroom, and these kids are in a classroom two hours a day, and by the end of their first year in school, I don't feel like they're speaking English fast enough. We're looking at working on this because we're actually looking for some summer classes for these kids, because what happens in the summer is they forget all their English. So, and that happens to the boys here as well. They'll drop out for a while, they'll go work, and then they come back. But this school system that they have through the international school, I think what happens is no matter where you ended, you can come back in and, and catch up where you left out. The book does have a good ending, but 
I don't, I, you know how, how happy ending movies and books are and they live happily, happily ever after? That's just the beginning of the happily ever after the prince and the princess. So in, in my idea, it was, yes, this is a good ending, but you have a life ahead of you of, of struggles. And something I haven't talked about yet is there's so much data in this book. There's so much information about how broken our immigration system is. It is the, the numbers of unaccompanied minors crossing the border in the last like five years is absolutely incredible. So it talks throughout the book how schools are not equipped for helping newcomers. And you'd think this is not the first time we have newcomers in America. Like, it's a history of newcomers throughout all of our times, but we're in another lull. We're like, this is new. We're, we're reinventing the wheel all over again. But Knoxville is not ready for newcomers either. And um, it was really interesting how they talked about how the Oakland International School is a delayed mirror of world events. That's on page 107. Um, I found that fascinating because they talk about the different wars unrests throughout the entire world and how even in a matter of months children from those countries are represented in the schools it's that quick so for me it was fascinating because in honduras so recently what i've heard from the school system is we're getting a lot of hondurans why hondurans but and when i say recently i'm saying since november november was the uh, moment where our then president reelected himself, I'm going to say illegally. In Honduras, you can only be president for one term. He changed the laws so he could become president two terms. The entire economy closed down for a month. The month of December was devastating for people in Honduras. January and February, I was getting calls because they know I'm Honduran, and they're like, hey, Claudia, also because it's Centro Hispano, but hey, Claudia, you know, we're getting a lot of Honduran kids in our high school. I found that fascinating because it reminded me of this precise thing. It's a mirror of events across the world. And it also reminds me of how connected we are as a world and how connected we are as a, as a country, as the most powerful country in the world. Everything we do, everywhere we become involved, affects what's happening here. So I hear a lot of people saying, you know, oh, well, that's happening in Honduras or that's happening in El Salvador or that's happening in Guatemala. Well, that's their thing. Well, I always find it interesting to look a couple of even decades back to what involvement the United States has had in those countries to see what effect has happened in the, the next years. So there are a million books you can read about that. The mirror part was really fascinating for me, how, how we, we do that. And, and that explains a lot of why Guatemalans are here. And then there's a wave of Mexicans, but they are from a particular region of a country. You know, it gets that specific. It gets that nitty gritty. You can pinpoint them on a map. So I, I really thought that was fascinating. Um, this was really disturbing, but you probably all know this as well. So apparently in the United States, Nine out of 10 people have a high school diploma. And it's really been proven that there's a clear link between school dropout and involvement with law enforcement. Well, nine out of 10 people have a high school diploma, but 69% of people that are incarcerated do not have a high school diploma. 69% of the people in the jails do not have 
a high school diploma. And Tennessee does not have tuition opportunity, which means we do not allow DACA or undocumented students to go to college for in-state tuition, which means we are every single day watching children drop out of the school system without a high school degree, without a pathway to professional uh, training to get jobs. Some people ask me what keeps me up at night. This keeps me up at night. Across the state, there's a lot of advocacy to support tuition opportunity. East Tennessee is the weakest link across the state. I talked to a, a law enforcement agent a couple of months back, and I'm like, what percentage of your gangs are Latino? He says, really, right now, it's non-existent. We don't, we don't have any Latinos in, in gangs. And there's maybe one or two, but it's not, a, it's not a big population. So when we talk about you know, MS-13 and La Salvatrucha 18, and it's like all oh, of these gangs coming from other countries, we don't have them in Knoxville. We don't have them in East Tennessee. But my concern is if we are not preparing hundreds and hundreds of children every year to go out and get a job, to go out and make a decent living, what are we preparing them for? What are we preparing them for? And right now we can talk about it being a Latino issue. You know, it's, it's the immigrant community, but we're all connected. So at some point it will be our community's issue. So we can either invest in it early on or we can invest in it later on. And this data uh, in the book says that to educate someone for one year is about $12,000. And that number, I've read a lot of different things. I've read lower and I've read higher numbers, but it costs $12,000 to educate someone every year. It costs $28,000 to have someone in jail for a year. So that, to me, is a, a really impactful number. Education, particularly for newcomers who lack connections to the larger community, can, when done right, provide a sense of community, belonging, and purpose. Throughout history, when young people feel excluded from society, they seek belonging in the fringes. We're in a point in Knoxville and East Tennessee that we can help people find community, belonging, and purpose. Or we can let it go for a little longer and we're gonna to have to work on the fringes. So that was my take from the book, thank you. Claudette, you've spoken very beautifully and I can't wait to read the book. You're a master speaker. I want everybody else to read the book, The Tortilla Curtain. That is an incredible book. It's just a life-changing book for me, too. It's about the same issue in California. How can people help the Centro Espano? You do such good work there. Oh, thank you. I forgot that plug. I'm not very good at this. Um, there are many ways you can help at Centro Hispano, and I appreciate that. Um, Bob is actually one of our music teachers for the children there. People come to us looking for that program. There's a lot of different ways to volunteer. People like the direct contact, so they can, you can teach English. It's a commitment of six weeks two hours a week. Um, you can work with either adults or children. I'm looking for people to help me build committees 
I need people to help me on my board. Um, I'm really interested in improving the way we evaluate our programs and the impact we have in the community. And I'm really interested in strengthening our outreach in the greater Knoxville community. I love speaking to my friends, but I need to speak to people that don't know about me and may necessarily might not be our friends. And I'm not scared of having those conversations. I'm still learning about having those conversations. In the end, it seems to end to be an interest in money. So if it impacts financially, positively, people are like, oh, well, maybe I do want to talk about immigrants. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of different ways in, in more like the administrative vision strategic side not everyone loves that part of it it is less commitment than the teaching and we also have great opportunities there we have some fundraisers coming up we have an event at echo uh, where if you come and eat and drink and chat with us a percentage of that comes to centro hispano and we have the latino awards in august um, sponsorships buying tickets coming out to that always supports us our biggest challenges as an organization now we're $260,000 budget, which if you know anything about nonprofits, that's hardly anything. I'm the only full-time employee. I have three part-time employees that are 30 hours a week. Those are my program directors and a couple of other people that a grant pays for hours here and there. If we want to solve these problems, and I believe we can, we need, we need more people on the ground and the schools need more people to support them. And Centro Hispano is uniquely positioned to do that because we are bicultural, because we are Latino as well, and we can reach those young people like no one else can. So that's why partners look for us. That's why Project Grad and Great Schools Partnerships search us out to do this part of the work. You talked about how much is spent per student, and you know, in, in Knox County, it's around, I mean, typically around 10,000. Yep. And so if a child comes in in the third grade, let's say they come from Mexico, they, they're in the school system 10 years. So that's 10 years of $10,000 a year invested in that child, which is $100,000. That's in one child. Mm -hmm. So we've invested, we have invested $100,000 in this child's education, and they can't continue to build on that. And that's one child. So if there were a thousand children in, in the state, which there would be many more than that, but let's just say a thousand, then that means the, the, the state of Tennessee is investing $100 million in those thousand kids and then just drop them, dropping them off the end of the cliff without being able to benefit from, from what we've done. So, I mean, that, if, it's, if people are physical, you know, conservative politically and physical conservatives, I mean, surely that argument has some weight. Thank you for pointing that out. I brushed right over that. But also, I don't have the number right now, but the difference between what a kid with a high school degree and a kid with a two-year professional, a young adult with a professional degree brings back to the community financially throughout their lifetime paying taxes, purchasing a home, all these things, I can't remember the number right now, but it's substantially um, increased by that, that couple of years of education. So thank you for, for adding that. And as well, part of that note is undocumented families pay taxes. So when we're asking for tuition opportunity, we're not asking for handouts. Even if you're a DACA, you cannot get Tennessee Promise, you cannot get the HOPE scholarship, you cannot get in-state tuition or FAFSA federal aid. You can't get any of that. All we're asking for is to let them pay what other children who have already, whose parents also pay taxes in this community can, can reach that same education. So. Pellissippi is three times more expensive for our students that are undocumented. 
for example, and that's the school that best serves them when they can afford it. I want to thank everybody for being here and to you, Claudia, for not only for a wonderful review, but for continuously bringing it back to our own climate here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.